Waldy and Bendy. Hello and welcome to Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art, the podcast they could not stop. I am, as always, Valdemar Janusztak, art critic of the Sunday Times, also known occasionally as Waldy. And I'm joined again by a colossus who towers over the art world. He used to be an art dealer, then he became an art historian and an important television personality. But now he does this podcast with me, and I'm grateful for every minute of his time, because he is Bendor Bendy Grosvenor. How goes it, Bendor? Oh, very well, thank you, Rada. And you always say such lovely things about me. Uh, this week, I'm delighted to be able to return the favour because I was reading my Times, and did you see this? The the eminent journalist David Aronovich uh, wrote a little uh, a paean of praise for you, having watched one of your films, and he he spoke of your witty waddling, and I think that's a. I mean, you don't get much better epitaph than that, do you? Waldie's witty waddling. Witty waddling. Yeah. I thought it'd be something like superb stomping would have been nearer the truth. But no, listen, I'll take anything. Thank you very much, David Aronovich. How nice. No, I didn't see that. That's great news. But anyway, you know what we've got coming up later? We have the very first Waldy and Bendy Awards. When we choose the best museum website of the great lockdown. That's the first Waldy and Bendy coming up in a moment. Now, don't forget. Everything we talk about here, all the art, all the websites, if you want to know more about them, if you want to see the pictures, it's all on the Waldy and Bendy pages of the online Sunday Times. It's a treasure trove of information. First, though, we're going to let the calendar guide us. Dodgy, 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 anniversary. Yes, it's dodgy anniversary time, when we follow that ancient art world practice of finding a pointless anniversary to be our peg. Bendy, did you know that it is 172 years, 172, since the first meeting of the Pre-Raphaelites? Uh, I hadn't done the maths, but we should celebrate this momentous event um, by pontificating about them for about what, eight minutes. We should. So what do you think? Pre-Raphaelites good, pre-Raphaelites bad? Oh, uh, mostly good. Or at least good when they started, and then they went horribly awry. 1848, seven artists met in a room, the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, to challenge the artistic orthodoxies of British art of the day. They included Millet, Holman Hunt, and Rossetti. Uh, and they were frustrated by the, the conventions that have really dominated British painting for about a hundred years, uh, the so-called the Grand Manor. Uh, this was typified by Sir Joshua Reynolds, first president of the Royal Academy. They weren't fans of Reynolds. They called him Sir Splosua. And they particularly didn't like the, the straitjacket that he had allegedly, in their eyes, bound British art within. And they said that he was beholden to what's called the Grand Manor. That is the idea that uh, paintings should be uh, dominated by uh, preconceived classical notions of, of beauty, of poses, of compositions, and subject matter, which, which went right back to the days of Raphael. And they said, enough of this. We want to tell real stories showing real people and suffuse our paintings with details so that the average man in the street will be able to see the very essence of our pictures. Yes. Well, they were confused from the top, as far as I can tell, because um, here you are making them sound as if they're very progressive. And yet they were, at the same time, 
immensely regressive. What uh, defeats me about the pre-Raphaelites a lot of the time is that for a movement, they do seem to be incredibly confused about which way they're heading. So part of it is this attack on the Grand Manor, on Sir Joshua Reynolds or Sir Sploshua, as they called him, yes. And part of it is a return to nature because they're one of the, the best thing about them perhaps is that they believed in being true to reality, to painting nature in the way it is without making it beautiful and grand and without reshaping it. But then they were also really into the Middle Ages. So they were into this sort of Gothic art and Sir Galahad and lots of damsels in distress who needed to be rescued. And all of that was sort of struggling to try and become a movement. And it's very curious seeing um, how they came together, but also how they then almost immediately fell apart because there's nothing really holding them together beyond perhaps this shared disregard for the ways of the Royal Academy. Yes, and I appreciate that aspect of it because let's face it, art history only advances by these these occasional revolutions these occasional fight backs against artistic convention and they come along every sort of every 50 years or so and and painting moves on and i i can see what they were getting at initially this idea that in order to get back to the some sort of truth in art you had to uh, go right back to the days of of what they called purer painting before Raphael. Now they didn't have anything against Raphael, but they wanted to explore art uh, before his his ideas dominated painting. And one of the, their most successful early pictures, I think, is is Millet's uh, Christ in the House of His Parents. And and what I like about it is it's so radically different from your normal conventional religious subject. And there's Christ uh, in a carpenter's workshop. He's he's cut himself on a tool, and his mother is just just an ordinary woman. In fact, um, the depiction of Mary was was mocked at the time for the fact that she wasn't this great sort of beauty, and and Joseph was modelled on a real carpenter. So I can see I can see what they were getting at. But the problem, as you say, is that they soon lost their way because they tried to advance art. They tried to take art into the future by creating this this very strange world, which basically thought that everything was perfect in about 1400. What's weird as well though, is see their pictures don't look like pre-Raphaelite pictures. So you wouldn't actually see much sign of you know, Botticelli or, um, or Fra Angelica in, in, the, in their work. I mean, that picture, which I think was the one that Dickens had a good laugh at, isn't it? The, the Millet picture of Christ in the workshop. You know, that doesn't look like anything that came before Raphael. It didn't, doesn't look much like much that came after either. It's a sort of world of its own, this rather sort of crazy fantasy world in which religion and Shakespeare and Sir Galahad and King Arthur and Guinevere and dragons and knights and, and, and even a load of Romans and Greeks, whoever they could find from the past were sort of shoved in <laughs> to this fantasy world, which was, I think, essentially an escape from reality. Of course it was. That's what it really was, wasn't it? Because um, they were living in a Britain that was changing dramatically. They hated progress, really. They, so they hated things like railway lines. They hated factories. They hated the Industrial Revolution. They hated the modern city. They hated progressiveness among women. Let's not forget that. They were a bunch of bearded old blokes who really liked to put their women down and swap yeah. them, incidentally. Yes. So they hated real progress. And instead, they imagined this sort of fantasy world of castles and and gothic churches and portcullises at their worst let's cut to the quick here baby at their worst they were just silly they were really <laughs> silly that's what i'm saying to you you're you're right they were silly uh, and like all the best victorian ideology their approach was founded on 
rank hypocrisy. You nailed it with their treatment of women. I mean, in one case, Holman Hunt was painting pictures that, that went on about the morality of, of men having mistresses and that women should save themselves. Uh, and at the same time, uh, Rossetti was uh, shagging everything that could possibly move, including the model of that very painting, who Holman Hunt himself didn't treat especially well. They had this terrible uh, paternalistic view of the world. And, and of course, their, their spiritual mentor was someone who I'm afraid I really dislike, was uh, John Ruskin. Oh, um, no, you don't, don't know. Gruskin was the best thing about the pre-Raphaelites. Oh, now, now, hang on. Oh, dear, right, gloves He's off. He's the one that was on about the truth to nature, which is their good side. He's the one that was writing about how they should paint what they see, how they should go to the Lake District and observe the moss and the rocks and the way the water glistens and all the stuff that he was doing. I mean, Ruskin, obviously an interesting character, but he was a giant compared to, to, to these kid pre-Raphaelites of his. Now, you just like John Ruskin because he was an art critic and he basically managed to influence the whole art movement and told people what to like. And that's what you would like to do, isn't it? You would like to go to artist <laughs> studios and say, paint this, do that, and you would like to be the ultimate arbiter of what's a success. Well, I do that already, Bendor. You're not bad at it either, if I may add. He was a genuine progressive, supported Turner. He did, as I say, preach loud and true about the need to be truthful to nature. And he didn't do all this stupid stuff that the Rossettis and the, and the Millets did. You know, And, of course, this, this sexual triangle, this infamous triangle between him and Millet and Effie Gray, you know, the sort of constant wife swapping that went on among the pre-Raphaelites. That unfortunately has become almost the first thing people think about when they think of the pre-Raphs, isn't it? Um, and it, it is unfortunate because they're, you know, although I'm being very cruel to them, there were some great pieces made by them and there is some really good work. And even some of Holman Hunt's pictures, I think particularly the, the sort of later ones, are so striking and original. That That is a word I would have to give to them in this instance, original. The scapegoat, that painting that hangs in Port Sunlight near Liverpool, this sort of strange beast in the in near the Dead Sea in Palestine, sort of suffering for the rest of us. And it glows with these weird colours, which when you first see them, you think they're completely unnatural. But then if you actually go to Palestine on a sunny day, it is all sort of purple and yellow like that. So there are these strange and eerie pictures where, where the truth to nature thing wins out. Um, and that's because of Ruskin, basically, Ben, or that is because of Ruskin. You've nailed it with uh, the picture of the scapegoat because, of course, Holman Hunt did actually go to the Holy Land and he did buy a goat and he went and sat in that particular spot and painted the goat until it died. Um, so <laughs> then he had to buy another goat. So, of course, that, that truth to nature thing does resonate through uh, their paintings. At the same time, I have two problems with that. The first is pictorial, is that I think consequently a lot of their paintings end up looking like stage sets. And they did actually rely a lot on uh, photographs and and they have a sort of terrible staticness about them when Millet in that painting of Ophelia paints a riverbank and, and a stream I don't ever feel or sense or hear the water in the way that I do of a, a painting by Monet of a riverbank so do you see what I mean that that kind of obsessive attention to detail I find can be quite deadening well, that, that painting sums up the whole issue, really, because although it's incredibly popular, it's like the most popular painting in Tate Britain, isn't it? It's got this weird balance between the obsessively realistic detail of all the flowers, every single 
flower painted perfectly, perfect evocation of this sort of riverbank. And then you've got this dead Ophelia floating down the middle of it. And she was posing in a bath for him, wasn't he, when, when he painted it? And it's again, it's that sort of clash between honorable ambitions in terms of verisimilitude and reality, and these sort of crazy fantasies about women and painting sort of dead Ophelias drowning in the water. Yeah. That's the heart of the problem in that one painting. You've, you've summed it up. Yes, but that all came from Ruskin, your hero. No, Ruskin was trying to save these blokes. I mean, yeah, he was the one that was trying to lead them onto better paths. Oh, Come on. I'll tell, listen, Mendor, I'll tell you what I do like, right? There are scattered about Britain, in some of the provincial museums, pictures by people who are, tend to get dismissed as lesser pre-Raphaelites. So they're just people who more or less knew about the movement and believed in some of it. And they are, some of them are, are great painters. And there's a chap that I found a few years ago by accident in the Walker Art Gallery called William Davis. I don't know, have you ever come across William Davis no, in your art dealing world? No. Minor pre-Raphaelite, that's what they call him. He's got a lot of show, uh, pictures in, um, is, it, is it, what's that other museum up in Birkenhead? Um, the is it the um, Williamson Art Gallery in Birkenhead? Right. And, and they tend to be beautiful evocations of the English countryside. And it, they're, they're pictures where, you know, you can, you can hear the, the, the grasshoppers chirping. You know, you can feel the smell of cut grass. You can feel that particular temperature of the English summer, so different from the French summer or the German summer. You know, there's this particularity, this absolute absolute specificity which makes those pictures glorious and that's for me the pre-raphaelites at their best at their worst it's burn jones and his damned damsels in distress and all that sort of ridiculous gothic fantasizing that went on into the early 20th century so um as the only really famous british art movement i'm afraid uh, and this is a bit of a build-up to the wardy and bendy awards that are coming up i think i'm going to only give them six out of ten to the pre-raphaelites that, that what do you think of that I'd agree with you, but I'm looking forward to round two on Ruskin, who I give one out of ten. We're going to need a lot of time to discuss Ruskin, but that can't happen now. It's going to happen later, because first of all, we have, yes, the unleashing of something new, something special, something very important. The Yes, folks, it's the unleashing of those important things, the Wendy's, otherwise known as the Waldy and Bendy Awards. Now, during the great lockdown, there's been a lot said and a lot done about museums being closed and having to go online and how important their websites are. So we've been trawling through these websites for you and deciding on which ones work and which ones don't, what's good about them, what's bad. And this is all the brainchild of that colossus of art, Bendor Bendy Grosvenor, who's been organising all this massive, massive search for information, um, which has involved basically asking me what I think and then asking himself what he thinks. But through these twisty channels, I believe we have arrived at the truth, haven't we, Bendor? So tell us all about it. What are we doing here? Well, this week we're selecting the five best art museum websites. Uh, next week, we shall focus on the five worst and for this week, you and I and Taya, who marvellously stitches this whole convoluted jumble of nonsense together into podcasts that make some sort of sense, we've all scored and ranked our five favourite websites. And we'll start at the bottom, so we will go from five to one. So uh, I have the, the scores and the, the results here. And Waldi, I'm delighted to say that in fifth place, it is a British contribution, the fifth best museum website in the world, is the National Gallery. I can't believe this, Bendy. I think you must have cheated. I put the National Gallery much higher up than bottom. 
um, I think their website's all right, you know. I mean, for me, the key thing about a, a museum website is that it should give you a sense of the of the building and give you a sense of the collection and allow you to sort of wander through it. Um, that's all I really want from it. I want to be able to see the pictures, find out a little bit about them. And their virtual tour, I think, is very good. It's very sort of easy to manage. I'm not very good on virtual tours. I tend to get my lefts and rights mixed up and I never quite go where I want to when I push my cursor forward. But theirs work pretty well. And they have some interesting little films on there. Um, there's a rather good film about the uh, Gainsborough painting, Mr. and Mrs. Andrews, featuring a chap called Valdemar Ilustrat talking about, about painting, make any sense illuminating it massively. Oh. So I actually thought that their website simple not overly ambitious was rather good and i would not have put it at the bottom i'm surprised that you two did actually well now now don't get us wrong we think it's a great website it's one of the five best in the world it just happens not to crack uh, any higher than five in in my and Ter's estimation uh, like you i think the virtual tour is really good i think the access to the collections is good the information about each picture is, is really interesting, concisely written. For me, it does fall short in one important respect, and that is the quality of the photographs, the images on the website. So for example, if you go to uh, the page for Titian and you try and download an image of, of one of his great masterpieces, it'll only give you a low resolution photo. Uh, that's because the National Gallery is one of these institutions that likes to uh, keep control of its photos and charge scholars and, and academics and anybody else to to use them in a decent resolution. So that's a big failure for me. But still, a good result. Well done, Britain. Well done, the National Gallery. Shall we move on now to fourth place? In fourth place, actually, I'm sorry, we have a tie for third place. Breaking news, tie for third place is the Louvre and MoMA, both on equal scores. So we'll have to have a tie break. But which one of those two did you prefer? Uh, do you know, I put them both really low. I put them both below the National Gallery. Um, the, for me, these are the two worst of the of the big museum websites. The Louvre, I found pretty much unmanageable. I mean, I do think there's probably a lot of interesting information on there, but it's very hard, particularly if you don't speak French, I think, to, to get on there and find the right place to go to. It's, it's, a, it's a sort of confusing melange of things that pop up here and there. And what you don't have is that sort of clarity you want from a museum website. You know, you go to it, press collections, you see what they've got. Press virtual tour, it takes you on a virtual tour. Press little films, and you get some little films. You know, that's what I want. I want simplicity. But the Louvre, just like the building itself, really, takes you here, there, and everywhere in your desperate search for something meaningful. So I found that really confusing. MoMA, pitiful website. Pitiful, I think. Oh. I mean, it's a typical victory of style over content, I think. Originally, believe it or not, I was quite encouraged because you know the, the good thing they've got is is the collections so if you want to find out about that painter that you love so much and i do as well philip guston mm -hmm. you know you press guston into the search engine and up comes guston and there's a little film about him and his pictures that's what you want yeah. um but then around all that there are these things happening strange little video events and live conferences and things happening from the garden and you just don't know where you are so you know by the time you've learned how to navigate the website you've been there for 25 minutes and you've lost you know you've You've lost heart, basically. So I would actually put those at the bottom. I think my, my personal scores, I do believe I gave the Louvre 5 um, and, and MoMA 6. Or and they were very low scores anyway, for sure. You and I, it's quite good that we never agree about anything. But on this, of course, I think you're wrong. I, I think actually that I appreciated the sort of certain French quirkiness of the Louvre website. And I love the way that they took you straight. There's no hanging about. They know that most people 
clicking on the Louvre website, we want to learn about the Mona Lisa. And, and there it is, within one click, you had a really lovely sort of uh, video and virtual exposition of, of the Mona Lisa in, in high definition glory. So I like that. I thought MoMA was quite good. I mean, a little bit complicated, uh, but I liked some of the, the teaching stuff. I liked some of the stuff for kids. Um, and it also uh, satisfied a niche interest of mine, Wildy. I'm fascinated by modern and contemporary art museum curators. Do you know what I mean? That the, the very idiosyncratic way they look. They always have quirky glasses and, and unusual haircuts. And well, I think it's what the same person, isn't it? I mean, it's just one person multiplied a thousand times and they, they sort of get spread <laughs> around all the museums. And perfect skin. How do they have such perfect skin? They all look like so Andy Warhol's screen prints. And, and the MoMA website has a, some great examples of them uh, wittering away about uh, great art. So I enjoyed that. Yes, I mean, that, that thing of getting a curator to talk about art, um, that happened quite a lot across all the websites, didn't it? I mean, it was one of the things that's happened during the great lockdown. You've got all these poor curators stuck at home um, with their books behind them in the manner that I have my books behind me now. And you, you normally do as well, although today you're matchless up in your special podcast home. Um, but they, then they sit there in front of their books and they tell you stuff. And um, that, I think, is a sort of pan-cultural phenomenon, the curator in front of a bookshelf telling you what you would enjoy in the museum were the museum to be open. So it wasn't just MoMA that did that. I mean, I found that the, the various places in, in all these websites that did it. I mean, I, I can just imagine these poor museums having to think of something to do, you know, during this lockdown. How can we present our work? Um, let's get a curator to talk about it. But they're, um, they're, they're, yes, I mean, they're, they're gentle and they're nice and, and they're usually informed. So that aspect of it, um, I did like, yes. Good. Now, Moving on, in second place, the second best museum website in the world, with a score between the three of us of 21.75, is the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. Yes, I'm the one that gave it the three quarters, the 7.5, 7.75, 7, 7, seven and three quarters. Um, yeah, it's a great website, no question about it. I would have given it more if it wasn't just a tiny bit difficult to, to get round. Um, you know, because it's so full, so rich, actually, it takes a while for stuff to load. Now, the more stuff you have on offer, the longer it takes you to find it. And that can be a, a tiny bit frustrating. But having said all that, no, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an absolute sort of marvel of stuff. I mean, you, what you want, as I said, for a museum is, first of all, to get a sense of what it's like. Well, you've got that because you've got these virtual tours you can go on. Go yeah. right down and see the Rembrandts, turn right and see the Franz House, all very good and with, with really good descriptions. Um, and then you've got um, the, the collection itself, you know, so any picture you want or any sculpture or any pot or any bit of mice and all that, that's ha that has it too. So um, it's very useful that way. But the most impressive thing about it for me was, you see, they had their curators on there. You talk about curators. They had all the Rijksmuseum curators on talking about something in the collection that they liked, right? Yeah. Yes. They all spoke better English than you do or that I do. <laughs> Absolutely astonishing. You know, there were 50 people on there all speaking entirely perfect English, talking about art with the most wonderful intelligence and grace. Yes. And it was just so impressive. It was so impressive. I mean, we could not do that in this country. We could not unleash what the Rijksmuseum unleashed on its own collection in terms of internationalism. So that alone, you know, nearly prompted me to put it right at the top of you know, the list and give it the first Wendy, because it was very, very good. Yeah, I agree. It was brilliant. I thought it was a, a brilliant website. I didn't have any trouble navigating it myself. I think I need to come around to give you some 
some lessons in how to use a mouse, Wald. It's, Ooh, it's not as complicated as you think. Um, uh, what I particularly liked about the Rijksmuseum is that, again, there was no hanging about. If you, you went onto their homepage, uh, within three clicks, you were doing uh, wonderful high-definition images of uh, Rembrandt or Vermeer. Whatever anybody wants from Dutch art, it was there immediately on a plate. And I also, I entirely agree with you about how brilliant the Rijksmuseum curators were. I'm a little bit in love with all things Dutch. I, I love the Dutch accent. Isn't it? the way they the way they speak English, um, with that sort of uh, slightly guttural way? It's 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 so nice to listen to. And when you marry that up with great art, then that's a very pleasant way to spend uh, some time online. I, I should actually say I'm a little bit Dutch myself. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. No, yeah. no. Say that again. I'm a little bit Dutch myself. Did you know that? Oh, that's double Dutch. Oh, <laughs> oh the old ones are the best, Wally. Should, should we move on? I think we better do, haven't we? Yes. What's the next one, Wendy? What's the next museum? In number one, the very best art museum website in the world. Uh, I've got a little uh, envelope here. Hang on. Is the Metropolitan Museum in New York. Fantastic. I have to say I agree with you there. I gave it top marks too. One of the reasons I did that was that they have done this marvellous thing. Opening page of their website at the moment is a rumination upon the importance of diversity, Black Lives Matter. It's a sort of lecture from the director of the museum about how important it is to remember our shared humanity. And to be honest, it brought a lump to my throat because here is this museum that doesn't have to do this kind of thing, but which obviously feels strongly enough about the issues that are happening in America at the moment to make this grand gesture. So it already got me on the right side, I must say. But even when you clicked past that appraisal of contemporary politics in America, once you've clicked past that, you've got this fantastic website beyond. You know, it really is what I dream about. Everything that I like, you know, I, I can find everything I want on there. There's tons of films to watch. I mean, brilliant little films. Um, so well made and classy films, you know, about restoration, about specific exhibitions, about things you can see. And then because the Metropolitan is such a strange collection, it's like the British Museum plus the National Gallery. Mm. You know, it's got everything in there, weird things. You can just follow, you know, you can follow these amazing routes and journeys through stuff. Um, you know, it's Alice in Wonderland. You go into the rabbit hole and you end up, I mean, I ended up, I was following some neoclassical sculpture and I ended up somewhere else completely with some mildly pornographic Japanese Shingo, you know, um, and, and the, you don't know where you're going to end up. It's brilliant. It's an adventure. Quite honestly, somebody at home now, if you wanted to spend a day on the Metropolitan website, there is enough on there to keep you entertained for the full day, maybe even for the full week. Couldn't recommend it more. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think you can also uh, connect that fantastic opening statement about Black Lives Matter with the whole ethos of the Metropolitan Museum and their website. The way they present their knowledge, the way they present their images, there's no restriction on, on the images you can download. They've also uploaded every exhibition catalogue that they've ever had at the Metropolitan Museum. It's all there, going right back to the 19th century. They are all about sharing knowledge. They are all about sharing art to anyone and everyone, no matter where you are in the world, no matter how much money you've got, they want to put their art on their website for you to see. And that's what makes the Metropolitan Museum one of the great museums in the world. And that's what makes it the greatest art museum website in the world. It's absolutely fantastic. And everybody, every museum should aspire to be like that. So the first of the great Wendy's, the first Wendy of all goes to the Metropolitan Museum in New York for the very best museum website hurrah hurrah what's the wendy look like by the way is it 
it's um it's a beautiful thing it's 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 a sort of amalgam of me and you actually um so, uh, so not, it's not it's, a beautiful thing then <laughs> no 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 it's got my looks uh, and, and your brains bendy how about that <laughs> it's gold pure pure gold pure gold just like me and you you see but um we must stop patting ourselves on the back here bendy it's time to move on because having done that having handed out the wendy's bendy um, it's time to do that other thing we do, which is to choose any picture we dream about to stick on our wall during the great lockdown. So in our imaginary museum, we can put whatever we fancy. On the wall. Yes, it's on the wall time. The fun bit of the show where uh, we get to indulge our dreams and, and, and find great stuff to put on our walls. Um, nothing stopping us from choosing anything we want, Bendy. So what have you chosen? Well, I've chosen a, a painting by my favourite artist, Van Dyke, who I suddenly realised I've not, I've not actually had in my on-the-wall choice yet. So I'm sorry, uh, Sir Anthony. Um, here I am making amends by seizing one of your pictures. It's a portrait of Olivia Porter, who was one of his best friends, uh, the wife of, of Endymion Porter, perhaps Van Dyke's closest friend in England. Endymion Porter was the only person that Van Dyke included in one of his self-portraits, is that painting in, in the Prado in Madrid, that double portrait. So I think Van Dyke's portraits are the best when he paints people he knows really well, and, and this is a, a terrific portrait. It belongs to the Bowes Museum, which is in uh, Barnard Castle in County Durham, and it's a painting which actually I have a, a little bit of a connection to, it shows uh, Olivia Porter half-length. She's sort of wafting through a landscape with that fantastic sense of movement that Van Dyke brings to all his portraits, uh, the way he was able to, to overturn the, the static portraits that had come uh, in the decades before Van Dyke turned up and revolutionised English art. And the head is beautifully painted, uh, and it also has uh, one of Van Dyke's best hands. I don't know if you can see Wildy, but the hand in this portrait is, is really good. In fact... It leads me into one of the only genuine art historical jokes. And this is absolutely true. So Van Dyck was once asked why he paid so much attention to painting his sitter's hands. Do you know what he said? No. Because it's the hands that pay the bill. Uh, very good. That's pretty good, isn't it? And, and this portrait, it was recently acquired by the Bowes Museum as part of the acceptance in lieu scheme in the UK. Uh, and it came from the Duke of Northumberland's collection, uh, where it had been for about 400 years. And I'm quite proud of this. One of the reasons that it went to the Bowes Museum, this painting, is because uh, they have another portrait of Olivia Porter, which is also by Van Dyck. And that was a picture which was uh, discovered by, by me some years ago in their storeroom. I thought that would come up sooner or later. One of the first television programmes I made. Yes, Bendor discovered a Van Dyke <laughs> and it's hanging next uh, next to her, his picture in the Bose Museum in Barnard Castle. Listeners, you should know this because it was a great find. The thing is, actually, the Duke's portrait of Olivia Porter, the Bose Museum's, uh, the, the one they've recently acquired, is actually better than the painting I found. So I've decided to take that one to have on my wall instead. I didn't want to say, but I do agree with you. Um, <laughs> yes, Olivia Porter, fascinating character. Of course, she was married to Endymion Porter, who is the central figure in, in one of my favourite paintings by William Dobson. This great picture of Endymion Porter, the great courtier to Charles I that hangs in, in Tate Britain. So Endymion Porter was a terribly significant figure in the English Civil War, and his wife is very lucky to be painted so beautifully, and indeed so frequently, by Van Dyck. It's a wonderful picture. I, yes, I I didn't want to be rude. I do prefer 
it to the one that you found because it's a more ambitious image isn't it yours is, is van dyke in a very modest vein this is something else but um yes well done well done to you i wish i could have found a picture that nobody knew about that's quite a quite a coup thank you very much i thought for a minute you were going to say do you know what bendy i don't believe that picture's by van dyke but um we're, we're, I buttoned my lip on that one. <laughs> no, because um, I didn't want to say it. I think there are reasons to doubt the, the one that you found. Um, it's basically not in the same league as this one. That's, let's put it that way. Yes, but you do believe it's by Van Dyke, don't you? Some of me believes it. The some of me that wants to do this podcast with you and that loves you as a brother. Um, that part of me believes totally that it's by Van Dyke. There's another part of me, you know, the Mr. Hyde part, which isn't 100% sure. But I think that's not an avenue I want to go down right now because there's not enough time and because this is a moment of celebration uh, and because you're right about so many things. Um, it would be unfair to point out that you're wrong about something. So let's move on to my choice, Bendor. My little pick here. I've gone for a painting by an artist that I, I've just come to absolutely adore. She's a contemporary American painter called Njidika Akunili Crosby. And I've seen her work around various shows, contemporary art shows, art fairs, but particularly at the Venice Biennale a few years ago, when she did this series, and they were called um, The Beautiful Ones. And she's a black artist. She makes art about black lives mattering. That's what her, that's her subject matter, really. So she will find people, uh, friends, uh, people who, who um, are, are sort of well-known in the black community or not, you know, people from her family, people from extended families, and she would present them in her art. So her work is very heartfelt and, and beautifully done. Uh, but what I didn't realize till I saw them in the flesh is how interestingly made they are as well. So they're not just about these sort of very warm and emotional tributes to black society. They're also incredibly intricate bits of work. And one I've chosen is of a beautiful young person standing in front of a, a yellow taxi and they're wearing a yellow t-shirt as well. So it's a sort of a celebration of yellow as a color. You know, I love color um, and particularly when women artists use it. So it's a beautiful thing in itself. But what's really fascinating is that when you get closer to it is, is the way it's made is absolutely fascinating she makes screen prints first of all of things that the headlines of newspapers uh, and magazines and then she introduces the image on top in very mysterious and magical ways so i press my nose right up against this picture right up against this yellow child standing in front of the taxi and i couldn't quite see where it was painted and where it was screen printed so it's a sort of magical way of working yeah i love this image i love her work and in a week in which black black lives matter has been important um i felt uh, i had to i had to show you this and i had to hang it on my wall by the way I thought it was a fascinating picture, and thank you for making me aware of this artist. I, I wasn't before. I couldn't quite tell from the photograph quite what the technique was and how it was painted. I just knew that there was something unusual and distinctive and innovative about the way it was made. So um, now that you've explained it to me, I can see uh, what's going on. I would love to see these works in the flesh. And I particularly admire such works because, let's face it, after uh, you know five, six, seven, eight hundred years of, of painting, even longer, there's really very few artists who can advance the art of painting in a different way to make it say something new in a novel and innovative way. And this artist looks like um, they're doing that. So um, I would really like to see some more works. 
Yeah, they're all good. Um, I think she's absolutely wonderful, and, and her work is really exciting. It thrills me at the moment. And I think uh, there's a there's a group of, of of black artists at work at the moment who are all returning to a, a figuration. They're telling stories in their art. They're um going through some of their their own personal histories. You know, it's, it's not sort of video and installation. It's it's images, and it's as if when things get real in the world, when things become really important, art can't help but go back to the sort of basic way of making things you know the way that that Grayson Perry makes them on on the art club you know there's a sort of truth to the hands that kicks in so something like that I think is going on but I, I love her work and I and I'm uh, next time there's a an Njidika Akunili Crosby show uh, in London I'm going to invite you down if the lockdown's finished Ben we'll go and see it together how about that I look forward to it and then we can have a fight about Ruskin and Van Dyke connoisseurship we could do all those things, but it can't happen now because that's the end of the show, I'm afraid. And from me, it's goodbye. And from Bendor, it's cheerio. Woldy and Bendy.